0: Our Father in heaven, we come to your help right now and ask for it, expecting you to do work through your word. You have intentions, Lord, with your word. You make claims on us with your word. I ask that you would help us to see this topic as not optional, but essential, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a fresh perspective on what it means to live among neighbors, what it means to pursue genuine friendship as the Bible defines it. And through this all, Lord, I I ask that you lead us in the path of wisdom, lead us away from folly toward you, Lord Jesus, for you are the greatest neighbor that we could ever know. You are the greatest friend that we could ever cultivate. I ask that you would speak to us powerfully through the book of Proverbs as we come to the close of this study. May you bring to bear all that you would like to upon our hearts. Press these realities into our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask for the gift of illumination as we turn to your word right now. There is no hope without it. So please come, Holy Spirit, unlock this text for us. In Jesus' name, amen. For the last time in our sermon series, I'll invite you to open a Bible to the book of Proverbs this morning. This morning we'll begin in chapter 3, the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 3, starting in verse 27 you wanted to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, the text actually begins on page 529 in the Bibles that are under the seats, page 529 in the red Bibles. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 27. I don't know about you, but for me, these weeks, uh, six of them have gone awfully quickly. I guess for me, a a six-week series is just not Long it, it doesn't it doesn't take long in the way that I think about series I tend to think more extended so this has really crept up on me um, and I'm grateful for uh, what the Lord has has been able to do I think in our our church through the book of Proverbs over these last weeks um, on the Sunday of April 15th we began our series entitled Wisdom Cries Aloud a spring study of the book of Proverbs and the the aim of this study has been to understand this book of Scripture. On its own terms, as it presents itself. Um, We haven't worked our way entirely through the book of Proverbs. That would have been impossible in the space of uh, six weeks, but we've covered some territory. And I hope, at least if we've seen one consistent theme emerge week after week, it would be this that the book of Proverbs is not about enhancing the quality of our Christian lives. It's not the goal of this book. It's not about enhancing the quality of our Christian lives, but it is about rather whether or not we qualify for eternal life. There's a lot more on the line in the book of Proverbs than we often give it credit for. Wisdom is far more precious than most Christians realize. To refuse her invitation is to refuse Christ himself, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the Apostle Paul tells us, In the New Testament, wisdom is the path of life. Folly is the path of death. And each week this spring, we've just taken that thesis and applied it in in several different contexts. We've looked at wisdom for planning ahead, we've considered wisdom at work on the job, we've looked at wisdom for our wealth. Last week, as it was Mother's Day, we considered wisdom in the home. What does the wise woman look like? The Proverbs. Thirty-one woman. And our final study in this series is today, and we're going to test that thesis one more time. The book of Proverbs is not about enhancing the quality of our Christian lives. There's a whole lot more on the line. It is about determining whether or not we qualify for eternal life. This time, it's wisdom in the neighborhood. Today's wisdom among friends and neighbors. If it's one thing that's kind of struck me as I've prepared this past week uh, for this particular sermon. Uh, it would be that true friends and neighbors, as biblically defined by the book of Proverbs, are few and far between. They are tough to come by. Given the way that we live our lives, even lousy friends and neighbors are hard to find, much less high-caliber ones. It's deeply ironic, despite all of our connecting tools that we have at our disposal today, and you know what these are. We have email We have smartphones, we have Facebook, we have Skype. Given all of those, we are still comparatively lonely people, maybe more lonely than we ever have been. Sociologist by the name of Robert Putnam about a dozen years ago wrote a book book called Bowling Alone. Uh, Fascinating study. He talks about the reality that we are bowling as much as ever, but you know what's down? Bowling leagues are down individuals are headed to the bowling alley alone. And he looked at that, and he wondered if there was something under that, underneath that. Indeed, he's right. We are bowling alone. And so we don't know what this is about, and it's fitting then, if we're going to figure out what, what it means to be a neighbor and what it means to be a friend is all about, that we would look backwards, not forwards, or not look around our, our present day for the answer to this question. The wisdom that we're going to ponder this morning is upwards of 3,000 years old. This wisdom has been time-tested by three millennia. The cream rises to the top. And more importantly than this wisdom's antiquity is this wisdom's divinity. This wisdom is God's wisdom about what it means to be a neighbor, what it means to be a friend. And we are best served by going to the one who is the author of these relationships to begin with. This is a God who, if you think about it, experiences the dynamic of this type of relationship within himself as the three members of the Trinity interact with one another in close proximity, in friendship with one another. To pursue other persons in relationship isn't just an earthly, time-bound human instinct. It's a heavenly, eternal, divine instinct. And above all things, relationships, the book of Proverbs will say, are are given to make us wise. They are for our benefit. For though it's possible to live without close neighbors and friends, it is impossible to become wise without them, at least as the book of Proverbs defines it. It's possible to live without close neighbors and friends, but it's impossible to become wise without them. Now, in the English language, we have two words, right? Neighbor and friend, and sometimes we overlap with these terms. We see a little bit of overlap, but not often. It's unusual when one is also the other. We generally use the term neighbor to refer to a person with whom we share a similar geography, like your street or your apartment hallway. Neighbors are those whom we didn't choose, but we happen to be spatially intimate with them, right? Friends, though, are different. When you speak of your friends, you're not necessarily talking about the person who lives next door. You're talking to the person who lives far closer. It's the person who lives next to your soul, whether or not you share the same exact geography. A friend is someone with whom you share an affinity, so the intimacy isn't so much spatial as it is emotional. Now, on occasion, our neighbors are our friends, and our friends are our neighbors, but that's unusual. It's a great providence of God when it happens, but it's not typical. That's why we have two different words for these relationships, neighbor and friend. Now, the reason I bring that up is because in the language of the book of Proverbs, in the Hebrew language, we find that they don't have two different words for this reality. In Hebrew, it's just one word. And sometimes in English, we translate it neighbor. Sometimes we translate it friend. And the context is going to be The key to determining the meaning. So, this morning we're going to explore wisdom among friends and neighbors. And we'll begin with neighbors. First of two points today. Number one, real neighbors give of themselves to others at the right time with the right tone. Real neighbors give of themselves to others at the right time with the right tone. You'll see in our definition there, there's a what, there's a when, there's a how to being neighborly. We'll start with a little bit of the what and the when, okay? Let's begin with Proverbs 3, verses 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I'll give it, when you have it with you. You'll notice that in verse 27, a good deed is described not as someone's desire as much as their due. You see that? And if that was the case for a Jewish person living in ancient Israel under the Old Covenant, it is 20 times as true for a Christian today. As I was working on this sermon at home yesterday... Mia wanted me to go outside so that she could play with the kids across the street, just wanted me to let her to go outside. And I balked at it because eventually it seems like they always end up in our neighborhood or in our backyard anyway. We've got the fenced in backyard. And I always end up babysitting the whole neighborhood if she's gonna go across the street. Eventually it'll just come back to us. And I was working. Dad, can I go across the street? And I said, no, honey, not right now. She asked why. And the only answer I had for her was, because I'm working on this sermon about being a good neighbor for the sake of the mission of God. And she just wasn't persuaded by that. And naturally, in short order, I watched the neighbor kids the rest of the afternoon. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Isn't it always within your power more often than you want it to be? If you're reading the English Standard Version this morning, you may notice the literal translation of the Hebrew in a footnote at the bottom of your page. Do not withhold good from its owners. That's what it actually says. If you know Jesus, your neighbors have a claim on you. Maybe you didn't know that. Now you do. You owe them deeds that adorn your profession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I owe them. The New Testament speaks the same language. Uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 1, be ready for every good work. 1 Timothy 6, 18, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Ready to share time, ready to share possessions, ready to share financial resources, expertise in one area or another, maybe just sympathy for what a neighbor is Working through at a particular time, the opportunities are endless. According to Proverbs three twenty-seven, anything you have at your disposal, anything in your power to do, is fair game for them. Or verse twenty-eight says, anything of which it could be said, you have it with you. I'm I'm snooty about my pens. Uh, My pens over there. Uh, My son has my pens. And uh, I had two pens on me uh, two nights ago. I was at a mission training event here that we had in Fellowship Hall, and there was a guy from another church that wanted to borrow a pen. And I'm just a little bit slow to pass along what I've got with me. And I watched him like a hawk, and I got it back at the end of the session. It's just stunning how stingy we can be. 19th century British pastor Charles Bridges concludes, kindness is therefore a matter not of option, but of obligation. And to withhold the due will be our eternal destruction. That's not sensational language. I think he's thinking about the Lord Jesus in Matthew 25, 41 to 43. Jesus says, then he will say to those on his left at the end of the age, the picture of the judgment, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was in prison, and you did not come to visit me. Neighborliness is a matter of eternal proportions with eternal consequences. Real neighbors give of themselves. Now there's another side to being a neighbor here and we'd better not neglect it. This is this is significant. Call it the dark side of neighborliness if you like. But we can overdo it. We really can overdo it. We can kill people with kindness. Proverbs 25, 17 has a word for us that is incredibly crucial for this discussion. Proverbs 25, 17 warns us this way. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? Now, for those of us introverts for whom this reads like a blank check, not to spend time with anyone, just want to remember that the word there is seldom. Seldom. Not never. Let your foot seldom be in your neighbor's house. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house. This is so real, isn't it? You've got particular neighbors in mind right now, don't you? That are too often at your house or in your apartment. And of course the operative question for us here is not do particular do we have particular neighbors in mind, but, but do particular neighbors have us in mind right now? Could we be guilty of this? Finish the phrase for me. Familiarity breeds contempt. Exactly. If you wanted a contextual illustration of this, if you're open to Proverbs uh, 25, 16, Proverbs 25, 16, the verse, one verse earlier says, if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill and vomit it. That's a pleasant image. And there's no mistaking the placement of the next verse. What's the Holy Spirit doing with verses 16 and 17? He's showing us another another version of this. Let your foot seldom be in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you. The language is exactly the same. And hate you. And vomit you out. Familiarity breeds contempt. Minnesotans like us can surely appreciate something Ben Franklin once said. Maybe you know this. He said, Guests like fish stink after three days. It's true. I mean, unless you put those sunnies in the freezer, they're going to stink up the whole joint, right? That's true. So, in our understandable desire to do good to our neighbors, I mean, eternity is on the line. Jesus has fire in his eyes when he's telling us about being a neighbor. It's the. It's the evidence that you have been born again, that you would be a neighbor. I suppose there is such a thing as too much good or perhaps the right thing at simply the wrong time. So much of this is just an issue of tact. We like to think that we all have it, but we need to be warned sometimes that we don't. Proverbs 27:14 says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning will be counted as a cursing. Tact, Right? Now, there's one more aspect of life in the neighborhood that we ought to consider before we take a look at our second point this morning, and it's simply this. Consider Christ your neighbor. Consider Christ your neighbor. John 1.14 describes in some of the most memorable language of the Bible what it meant for God to take on human form and walk among us in the person of Jesus Christ, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the language of habitation. It's the language of neighborhood. It's the language of residency. The eternal Word of God, God himself, moved into the neighborhood 2,000 years ago. And real neighbors give of themselves to others at the right time with the right tone. Is, is God our neighbor? What did he ever give us? John 3:16 reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is our neighbor. Christ is our neighbor. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He moved into the neighborhood. The book of Hebrews goes on to tell us that Christ himself partook of our flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And unlike any neighbor you've ever known, it is impossible for you to overstay your welcome with him. It's impossible. Hebrews 4 15 and 16 goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This week's community group study questions, we dig a little bit at this on question number 5 in relationship to Proverbs 25:17 let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house and the question is asked is it possible for god to ever have his fill of you and hate you it's a fair question the answer is actually a qualified no It's popular to think these days that the answer is an unqualified no, but I wouldn't be a faithful preacher if I told you that. It's a qualified no. Only sinners are welcome in God's presence, but they must be repentant sinners. Those of us that grieve over our sin, that mourn our sinful failures before a holy God, that's the kind that he will welcome right into his living room. If you do hate your sin and you desire to come to God through the gift of his son, don't let your foot be seldom in his house. Press your way right into the throne of grace that you can find mercy and help in your time of need. That's why Christ moved into the neighborhood. That's why the word became flesh, to be our neighbor. Real neighbors give of themselves to others at the right time with the right tone. Consider Christ your neighbor. Second point today, true friends always love one another just as they are, but refuse to leave each other that way. True friends always love one another just as they are, but refuse to leave each other that way. First of all, true friends always love one another just as they are. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother was born for adversity. Now, in this case, I think the friend is proving himself to be a brother. I think it's the same person in both halves of that verse. It's possible that Solomon has in mind a friend at the beginning of the verse and a brother at the end, but it's my hunch that given the language of some of the other proverbs, I just I wonder. I think the friend here is the true brother in this verse. A friend loves at all times, a brother is born for adversity. It's the same person. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-four, for example, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A friend loves at all times, like family, sometimes unlike family. A friend loves at all times in the way that family ought to. But families ought to work this way. True friends love one another just as they are. Do you have a friend like this in your life? Or have you known a friend like this sometime in the past? A person to whom you are totally known and a person by whom you are totally loved. There's nothing like it. It's very freeing. Our marriages ought to be this way. They really ought to be. I remember when Melissa and I were first getting to know each other back in college. We were both very young Christians at the time. And one afternoon, I confessed to her a particular sin, a series of sins, that I had never spoken to another human being before, and I have not spoken of since. But I shared it with her. I had never felt so vulnerable. I was completely prepared for her to look me in the eye with absolute disgust and walk out of the room. I felt like after I'd made my sin known to her that I was just standing at the bottom of this really deep well and just looking up. And it was as if she looked over the rim of the well and said, Is that the best you've got? I'm not going anywhere. I love you. It was unreal. True friends do that. Now, that's not the only thing that true friends do. That's half of the battle. Friends always love each other just as they are, but if they really love each other, they will refuse to leave each other that way. That's when you know if you have a true friend. True friends love one another, but they don't flatter each other. True friends have affection for one another, but they are not impressed with one another. There's a difference between friends and fans. This would be of local interest to us. You know, rock and roll icon Prince has always referred to his legions of fans as his friends. Did you know that? He doesn't like the word fan because it's short for fanatic. I think that's where the word comes from, actually. He doesn't like the connotations there. it's a nice sentiment. I think he means well, but I didn't buy a copy of Purple Rain 28 years ago because he and I were buddies, right? Proverbs is abundantly clear on this score. Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of the enemy. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, Not everyone who spares is a friend, and not everyone who strikes is a friend is an enemy. Profuse are the kisses of the enemy. That's true. Judas comes to mind. On the other hand, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have friends like this? Friends that are just singularly not impressed with you. They love you, but they give you the final 10% every time because they care for your soul. They want you to grow. If you don't have friends like this, you don't really have friends as you ought. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27:17 is one of the most well-known and least practiced of all proverbs. Proverbs 27:17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This is almost always quoted in the context of men's ministries in the local church, and I'm grateful for it. We ought to be sharpening kinds of dudes around each other. This is an important thing for men to do, but there's nothing uniquely male about this activity. All people ought to be sharpening in their friendships toward one another. It's a vivid vivid image here. The first iron that's spoken of in verse 17 is the edge of a sword or a knife. That's the first iron. The second iron is a a different type. It's the wetting iron or the sharpening iron. A literal translation of this verse might read something like, as iron sharpens iron, so people sharpen the edge of their friend. And we need friends like this in our lives. We are in trouble without them. Commenting on this verse, one author says, by this process, people are filed made smooth and bright and fit for business, who were rough, dull, and inactive. In honest, sincere conversation with another person where you look each other in the eye and you come into collision with each other, what happens? If you love each other, you're successful in knocking each other's edges off. We scrape against one another. It's painful and it's a wonderful process. It's what friends do with each other. It stands to reason, too, why this is why so many awkward people don't have close friends. You know what I mean? Some folks that are so socially angular and interpersonally painful to be around, this is an issue because likely no one has taken the time to love them in the way that they ought, to help them to knock the edges off. It ought not to happen in this church. All of us ought to be cultivating relationships like this with one another. That's why the community groups exist. There's nothing magic really about a living room as far as I know. But there's something about grace and truth over time in a living room. Year after year, year after year. Our group is beginning. We're on the front end of some really good stuff. Really good times of prayer. Very genuine sharing with one another, leveling with each other, helping each other grow. It hasn't happened overnight. We haven't microwaved it. We've crock-potted it over three years. And we're just at the beginning of some really good things, I think. But we need friends like this. More to the point, are you a friend like this? Are you willing to love people in such a way? You love them as they are. You love them at all times, but you refuse to flatter them. For other people's help, be a friend like this. Now, as we close, I want us to turn to the Lord one more time. We've already considered Christ our neighbor, but have you ever considered Christ your friend? Your friend. This is especially important for, the, for those of us who have a, an appropriately large and lofty concept of who, who God is. We love the idea of the transcendence of God and the sovereignty of God and the power of God. That just scratches where we itch. We need to recognize, too, that God comes to us in Christ as our friend. Consider Christ your friend. I know you may know these words from the Lord Jesus in John 15. I'd like to to read them as they are. John 15, 12 to 17. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We didn't choose to be Jesus' friend. He chose to be ours. And I've appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that the fruit should abide so that Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. We sang it on the front end of this sermon. What a friend we have in Jesus. Yes, we do. There's no one like him. As a neighbor, we can be assured that we can never darken his door too often. He never rolls his eyes and says, oh, she's coming back again. Oh, he did it again. It's not like that at all with Jesus. When we come to him repentant, he will never cast us out. That's his neighborly aspect. But then as a friend, there's something else we have going for us, something additional. Not only does he prove his love for us by laying down his life for us in our place, that's true friendship, but as a friend, he never leaves us. It's not that we don't have to just not leave him. He never leaves us. Us. I'm thinking about Paul's final letter that he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul describes how he had been deserted at one point in his life by every friend he knew except one. 1 Timothy four sixteen and 17. Hear the pain and the power in Paul's voice. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. They all deserted me. May it not be charged to them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. My pastoral hero, John Owen, once wrote in a letter to a friend of his, Christ is our best friend and ere long will be our only friend. I pray, God, that with all my heart I may become weary of everything else but converse and communion with Him. How did Owen cultivate this friendship? How do we do it? In another place, Owen writes that, This friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits, and these the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. See what he's saying? Do you give yourself to long and loving reflection over the pages of the Bible with the Lord regularly? Reflection and meditation over the scriptures? Do you linger in prayer and communion with Christ? Do you ever have a friend that you're having a meal with and you just you don't want to leave? It's so good. One hour goes by, two hours go by, and you're thinking, I gotta get back to work. I gotta go mow the lawn. I can't, but I but I don't want to leave. That's the way it ought to be with Christ. He's our friend. He's no longer just our master. He wants to spend time with us. He loves us as we are, but he's such a good friend. He will refuse to leave us that way. As you confess your sin to him, he'll welcome you in. And as you continue to press your way into his presence, he will impart his wisdom to you. He will give to you. He will strengthen you. He will help you. Consider Christ your friend. Although it's possible to live without close neighbors and friends, it is impossible to become wise without them. Real neighbors give of themselves to others at the right time, with the right tone. Consider Christ your neighbor. True friends always love one another just as they are, but they refuse to leave each other that way. Consider Christ your friend. If you have never taken a step toward Jesus Christ in this way, why wouldn't you do it today? To know how far he came to become a neighbor of yours, to know what he is willing to do in order to befriend you. What are you waiting for if you've never welcome this neighbor, welcome this friend into your life. You can do that today. You'll never know anyone else like him. One of our elders, Randy Johnson, will be down here right after the benediction. and would love to talk to you about that if you'd like to know what it means to invite Jesus in on the front end of your life to begin walking with him. You may be with us today and you may be an old friend of Jesus, but there's distance. You're barely neighbors, it seems, and it doesn't feel like friends. Maybe you want to talk with a Shepherd of a church, Randy, would love to, to be able to talk with you. Or turn to someone beside you. Tell them what you're going through. Don't miss an opportunity to be prayed for, either by one of the shepherds of our church or one of your friends beside you. Right now, speaking of prayer, let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are such... Simple realities, but we gloss over them. They're simple, but they're not simplistic. Being a neighbor is serious work, and there's a lot on the line, like heaven and hell. And Lord, we are profoundly grateful for the fact that you don't simply exist as our master, although you always fittingly and appropriately are our Lord and master. You have come so close so as to call us friends, to consider us your companions. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we transition to the summer months, that these months would be deep ones of cultivating that friendship with you, You have moved into our neighborhood for that purpose. You have laid down your life to prove your friendship with us. There's no greater friend than that. I pray that we would not waste this summer, but that we would cultivate a deep and abiding walk with you. Lord, if there are those who are among us that are on the outside of that relationship with you, Lord, we want nothing more than for them to come in. Draw people to yourself. Grant the gift of repentance and faith Help people to throw the doors of their hearts open to you and befriend you. We thank you for the book of Proverbs, Lord. Would you continue to make us wise, sharpen us over this next season, help us to apply all of the practical things that we have learned, not simply so that we might upgrade our lives, kind of a Christianity 2.0, but a... Christianity that shows itself to be on the path of wisdom, which is the only path, the path to life. In Jesus' name, amen.